This is the future of finance by Motive Labs. Hello, welcome to the future of finance, the Motive Labs podcast, where we live and breathe the next generation of financial technology. back to the Future of Finance podcast. You're joined by me, Sam, and today I have two titans of industry. We are joined today by Alistair Lukies, the founder and CEO of Pollinate, and Herman Spruit, the CEO of Pollinate International. Welcome, guys. Hi, Sam. Thanks very much for having us. So I don't even know where to start. My mind is already a mash, which doesn't bode well for the rest of the podcast. But let's start with your careers. Both of you have had wildly diverse careers, achieving incredible things. But let's start with Herman. First at HSBC, then a number of other different financial services and consulting businesses. Lastly, at Bain, which speaks for itself. How has your career evolved into where you are today? From your experience of creating the Bain 10 all the way through to Pollinate. Yeah, you'd like to say that it was very carefully thought through and planned and immaculately staged. And of course, it never is. I joined HSBC largely because I wanted an international career. I didn't particularly want to be in finance, even though my father had been a banker. But I wanted to go abroad and travel in my 20s whilst I could and joined them as an international manager and had a huge, I was about to say, amount of fun, which is probably right in your 20s. It really was a lot of fun. But you either had really dull jobs in really interesting places or the other way around. Probably the most exciting one I had was in Vanuatu, a country most people haven't heard of and certainly haven't visited. It's got a population of about 125,000 people spread across 20 islands, and HSBC was trying to make it into an offshore banking center. I think they kind of forgot that I was there. And 14 months later, hitting my second rainy season, I sort of put up my hand and said, hey, excuse me, I'd really like to go and do something else. Bear in mind, the street I'd lived in before that had a population of about 250,000, so twice as many as this island population in the South Pacific. But a huge variety of jobs from very mundane branch banking to international finance to project finance to even a bad rescue and one of the first bad bank, good bank splits. Uh, so that really was the start. Then I came back to Europe and ended up in consulting. The firm that I joined was Maricon Associates. It didn't exist in Europe at the time, but its target was very much what's very unfashionable today, but the shareholder value mantra and making that your governing objective and making really clear decisions. And in that consulting career, like everybody else, I decided to go for three years and ended up, unlike most people, staying for 17 But what's different for me in that one is that I had five clients in the end, if you add Bain as well to my consulting career in 25 years, whereas most people, it's the other way around. They have 25 clients in five years. So very much staying with each client for five, six years or so, working very closely with the CEO to help change the business. And then post-Bain, I have joined Pollinate. In some respects, it's a huge change and in others, much, much less so. If you think about the career working with you know, large companies trying to change them, but at the same time, building the smaller business, building Maricon Associates, building the FS practice within Bain, they're really also business builds. And in that respect, they're very similar. And the other thing that's similar, of course, is that Pollinate, which we'll come to in a minute, is very much aimed at SMEs and providing a growth platform for SMEs 
to help the banks renew themselves against the digital disruption and the challenges that are bringing that. So still working with banks, know banks well, and working very much focused on SMEs and building a business. So those are kind of the three steps in this incredibly well-planned career. Thanks, Edwin. And I want to ask how you came across Pollinate, but we're going to come to that in, in just a moment. Al, you and I go way back, and many people listening to this podcast will know you, if not personally, at least by reputation. And I'm going to do some smoke blowing. So fortunately, this is just audio. You founded Monetize in 2003. You were then recognized as a tech pioneer by the World Economic Forum. During your time as CEO at Monetize, where you and I first met, you grew the business with the team to a 2 billion sterling market cap with 1,700 people on four continents. It was quite a journey. In 2014, you were appointed as business ambassador to the prime minister. You've done a ton of stuff with the UK government focused on the financial technology agenda. I don't even feel like I can cover it in a book, let alone in an introduction. Let's hear it from the man himself. Al, tell us a little bit about your career, but most importantly, really, about what brought you to conceptualizing Pollinate and building it. Yeah, so Sam, none of this is new use to you because you've been a very big part of it. And you know, Paul, the work that you and Sam have done to spread the fintech news has really been phenomenal. So I'm really honored to be here and to have the chance to give an update really on what I'm up to. But yeah, many people who do know me know that, like Herman, there really wasn't a huge strategy involved. I have all sorts of nicknames. The one that sort of seems to stick at the moment is the honey badger that, that <laughs> likes going out and taking on the things that you know, perhaps other people won't. And following a rugby career and having broken lots of bones, actually in parts of the world that Herman was referring to, running into very big Pacific Islanders, I thought I should find something tougher to do. It's a bit like Stockholm Syndrome. So I started working with banks and many, many people shy away from wanting to work with big organizations because it is difficult and there's lots and lots of mouths to feed and lots of people to convince and lots of people to convert to your way of thinking. But you know, one of the things that I've enjoyed most about it over the years, uh, and this has been a common thread through all of the businesses I've been involved in, is this idea of kind of Aikido, taking the energy, that inertia, and turning it to your favor and taking advantage of the distribution of these huge organizations. One of the reasons that we're seeing disruption in financial services and in healthcare, very appropriate at this time much later than we've seen in other verticals is because they're regulated. And quite rightly, governments around the world want consumers' money and their health to be thought through carefully and protected, whilst music and retail and other industries that are far less regulated have been disrupted by technology very early. Now we're starting to talk about the real lifeblood of humanity, commerce and health. And so over the past 20 years, I have really enjoyed being at the center of fusion, fusion between the incumbent and the innovator. And if we think of technology as an all-pervasive horizontal, you know, began with the earliest computers through mainframe and blade frame and machine learning, AI, and wherever it ends up as we integrate into technology towards singularity. You have to think about incumbents and how they fuse into technology. FinTech is financial services as a vertical, merging with technology as a horizontal. And that fusion is what makes the fourth industrial revolution so exciting for me, because if it's just tech, then you, know, you don't need the fin. There's no financial services. It's about bringing old and new and big and small together. So that's been the common thread throughout my career. 
and working alongside your good self and some of our colleagues at Motive, I was hugely honoured to be working with Royal Bank of Scotland and particularly Ross McEwen. When Royal Bank of Scotland were looking at how they re-entered the merchant acquiring world, they'd been forced to sell world pay in 2008 after the global financial crisis and had watched for 10 years as the team at world pay led by Ron Khalifa, a good friend of ours and, and another one of the great champions for the UK fintech industry currently conducting the Khalifa review for the government on fintech. Ron and his team led WorldPay to become a highly valuable global business and RBS had to sit on the sidelines and watch that happen. So Ross had a great passion for getting back into that space and that's where the birth of Polymate came and it's been a great honour to put together the team and although we're still at the early stages, we feel we might be onto something. I want to get stuck straight into the SME sector that you're supporting and particularly in this world we're living in where digital singularity is almost a reality when we can't necessarily spend time together. It's never been so important to support SMEs. But before I do that, how did you come into meeting Al? Where did this partnership come from? You heard Al reference Ross there. I worked with Ross through Bain sort of from 2013 when he first became chief executive of RBS Retail and then stayed with him as he became CEO of the group taking over from Stephen Hester and did the strategy review taking a very sort of economic lens on the business, you could see that investment banking capital markets is a single digit ROE business. The personal banking side was still in excess of 20 and sort of commercial banking or SME banking in the middle 15 to 20%. So to reallocate your capital to SMEs, and particularly if you could link that with the private bank they had with Coots, where you say, look, you've created all this wealth, but we'll also look after your private wealth was a really good refocus area. So whilst Ross kind of removed the rubble, what was left over post the government rescue, we were very focused on rebuilding a good bank out of the personal bank and the commercial bank. And that's where obviously recapturing the ground you'd had to give up by selling WorldPay was an important part of that. And that's how I met Al, because Ross engaged Al to do that through the Polonate vehicle. And then a couple of years ago, we started talking about what's the real potential of Polonate? And you said, well, it's fine if you do it just in the UK, but think about lots of other banks have similar needs. Why do it all yourself? And that's where you mentioned earlier the Bain 10, which maybe just take a minute to explain is the idea that post sort of 2008, the regulator and the central banks kind of closed the door on cross-border banking and everybody shrunk to within their borders. That created a condition where many banks were facing similar issues, but just didn't have the scale to address them. So we created the Bain B10 in order to have banks share ideas on things like cybersecurity. You know, common issues where you're not likely to compete in the next five to 10 years because there will be no major multinational cross-border takeovers allowed in banking. And that same thought occurred to us when we looked at SMEs and the whole merchant acquiring space. If you reinvent that for yourself, that's great, but it's such a multiplier of value if you actually are able to take that international and share that with other banks. And last year was really the time to start doing that. So that's how I met Al and uh, how I ended up becoming the CEO of Pollinate International with that mission in mind. And that model, that sort of collaborative R&D model is so powerful, particularly when you do start onboarding other banks who can benefit from all of that research and development and ultimately market testing. And that brings me to the next point. Big congratulations to you guys. You've very recently announced a multi-year partnership with National Bank of Australia. 
I think there's some serendipity in there, Al, because I'm pretty sure last time you and I were on a podcast together, it was actually with Scott Morrison, the Prime Minister of Australia. Can you tell us a little bit about that? And I know in the Australian economy, SMEs are the backbone and they drive over half the country's economic output and employ two in every three Australian workers, I think. So tell us a little bit more about the Pollinate mission there and what you're partnering with now to do. Thanks, Sam. And that was a lot of fun with Scott Morrison, who was uh, so complimentary about our fintech ecosystem. And we were just signing the fintech bridge with Philip Hammond. And he was so impressed with all our unicorns. He was saying, how can we bring them to Australia? So it was great fun. And he made a good point in this speech he gave that day, which is a lot of people don't realize about Australia and Canada is that during the global financial crisis, they were relatively untouched. You know, they had potential authority that meant that they didn't get engaged in some of the riskier areas of global finance. And so they survive very well. They also have incredibly strong superannuation and pension funds. And so both of those markets had strong public balance sheets. And the Australian market, from a banking perspective, didn't look dissimilar to the UK market for clearing banks, for large clearing banks, well-integrated payment systems. But, you know, I think fair to say only having those four banks had not led to great competition and kind of the innovation that we've seen since the 2008 global financial crisis, 23 new neobank licenses written, the open banking paradigm for early adopters of PSD2 and now GDPR. So what we've all done together, you yourself, Sam, very much involved to make the fintech ecosystem work in the UK, the right touch regulation is something that was very appealing to Scott and Australia. So it was always high on the, the target list as they adopted a lot of the regulatory tailwinds that we had implemented in the UK. National Australia Bank is really a fascinating opportunity for us because unlike NatWest, who were re-entering the merchant acquiring world with zero merchants, so we're starting from scratch and building a system from scratch, National Australia Bank has 19% market share of small businesses. It has over 125,000 small business customers. What it's not done as well as perhaps it should have over the last five, 10 years is digitize its offering. So it's still relatively manual. You know, it's still a few days to wait for your terminal and a lot of snail mail and paperwork to do. So one of the aspects that Pollinators designed over the last couple of years, which you know, Jonathan Hughes, Fiona Roach Cannon, Tim Jocelyn, our colleagues and co-founders really deserve all the credit for, is built just an incredibly intuitive UI, if you like, the squareification of banking. And so whilst it's hugely bank grade at the back end, because it has to be, the onboarding process is really you know, tech fit. It's really Silicon Valley. It's really Apple, Amazon, Square. You can onboard a merchant in under five minutes. They're fully regulated, accredited, checked out with company's house and ready to take payments. So that's what we're bringing to NAB and to their merchant base in Australia. As you rightly say, you know, in Australia, more than just about any other market, you know, just like us in the UK, a nation of shopkeepers, SMEs are the lifeblood. So we're very excited about the prospects for that deal. It's a long-term partnership, so lots of time to learn together. And of course, by onboarding their existing merchants, we will learn a lot very quickly about what really helps NAB 
to help make those merchants more effective because really sam pollinate is although merchant acquiring is sort of what we're becoming famous for that's just a tiny part of what pollinate does but pollinate is all about merchant effectiveness it's all about how can we help a wine merchant a hairdresser an optician a shopkeeper a restaurant be able to focus 99.9 percent of their time on doing what they do best and actually have a whole set of digital tools to take care of that boring mundane administration or finding a great distribution partner or running a marketing campaign that stuff Mm. should be as easy as amazon find it rather than something that you have to spend days a week on did you know motive partners has a weekly newsletter it's called brain food it comes out every sunday morning and it's packed with all the things you need to know about financial services and technology you can subscribe at motivepartners.com Can we expect to see Pollinate form partnerships with other great rugby playing nations? (laughs) (laughs) He's just publicly announced the secret of my ambition. Although I'm not sure Brazil, where we are expecting to sign a partner next year, has rugby as an asset, but plenty of others and a nice place to visit. Yeah, you're, you're right. As the current pipeline suggests, we will have offices in Cape Town, Melbourne, the UK and Toronto, Canada fairly soon. But there are other markets, of course, we're talking to. And the thing that I suppose really excites me about the role that we can play, none of us could have predicted COVID, none of us wanted COVID, none of us in the first few months knew what to do about COVID. And, you know, I have to congratulate governments around the world for getting on top of it, certainly from a financial perspective and supporting small businesses. But we all know that that can't go on forever. We all know that charity and aid is not what proud entrepreneurs want. What they want is they want their ability to trade their way out of challenging times. And Pollinate has a whole set of tools, a toolkit, if you like, that can be distributed through the banks, just like government loans and funding was but can actually help small businesses really drive back our economy as we look into a new and different future. So if that means that I happen to be somewhere near where the Lions are touring next summer, that will only be by coincidence. I'm delighted to hear it. You and I should spend some more time together. So, (laughs) Obviously, that's why coming from a footballing nation, even though it's one that's lost three World Cup finals in my lifetime, that's the other asset and hence you get brazil coming into the picture yeah i knew there was a plan here so how you and i have have frequently talked about debated the history of money people think of financial services as being relatively new to fuse with technology but that's not true at all you know from market manipulation back in the days of bartering through to the late 1960s and the first atm financial services has always benefited from technological advancements Herman, tell me, what are some of the most exciting technology trends for the SME community that you're looking forward to seeing SME communities benefiting from in the coming years? Your history doesn't really go back far enough. If you remember the Rothschilds originals, all about funding lords and using the pigeons to bring in the battle news was perhaps the earlier 
information advantage and it's it's all really about information which is i think where the technology has helped the most and originally though it's been very much used for the bank's own purposes in order to check in some ways as ross would say the checkers checking the checkers you know it's to make all that huge amount of information that they had on their customers and i remember sitting through huge ibm printouts and my first job every morning was to check for irregularities or transshipping in when I was running trade finance desks. And it's all about almost in the internal use of data. I remember being really shocked in Brazil. I got to some branch and there was an ATM outside and people going up to the ATM and they were immediately being offered coffee. And I said to the branch manager in the end, why, why are you offering them coffee outside? Oh, so that they come inside and take their cash from our tellers because we have a KPI that says amount of cash per teller. It allows us to keep our staff. So we don't really want them to use the ATM. So early doors, it was largely about automate control and automation. And I think what's exciting now, if you think about banking really adopted an industrial model of let's manufacture a product and then distribute it. You know, and certainly in retail banking and, and even SME banking, that was very much the case with the branch networks. You would have very clever people define features and benefits on the product side and then throw them over the wall to the branch network or the relationship managers and the regional armies of regional managers to control the relationship managers to distribute and then you use it in that way. And what I think is very exciting about technology today, it's really much more about the data. It's that you no longer need to think about product and distribution, but you can actually think about the customer need and then about service, You know, making that journey as seamless as possible for the customer. And that's a complete mindset change that banks are still today struggling with. You still have banks, you know, you go in there and you find the highest paid people are often the product people. And then then you add omni-channel and still all that talk about distribution. Nowadays, you can think using data much, much more about the actual need that the customer have. The obvious one is the mortgage. You know, do I really want a mortgage? No, what I really want is to own a home. Do I really need insurance? No. What I really want to do is to keep my family safe and protect my future. You know, those are the real needs. And similarly with the SMEs, I want to grow my business. I want to fund my growth. Those are the real needs. And with technology, you can do that much, much more effectively today. And that comes from data. And there are two sides to data. Most people now are getting the kind of know me data what you might call the single view of the customer. So everything is in one place, despite the fact that the bank might have five or six different platforms, you can actually see that customer's data. But the second level is really the more exciting one to me, which is you understand the customer. So this is more the behavioral side of interpreting the data, what their preferences are, what their risk profiles are, how fast they want to grow, what kind of steps they're prepared to take to build their business. And using data both to know me and to understand me is the new personalization. It's not knowing that really nice chap, Sam, at the branch, you know, who's been the bank manager for the family for years. It's actually the bank understands me using the data, and that's where you can make all the connections. And so what we're trying to do at Pollinate to make all those connections inside the business itself, the business with the bank, the business with its community, but also the business with its own customers, many of whom are the bank's customers. So you can make that link between SMEs and the personal banking population that the bank also serves, which is hugely powerful. So when we think about existential threats to banks, a lot of people think of the tech companies. You know, the S&P 500, over 20% of the market capitalization is just five technology companies in the US. When we think about these companies entering the payment space, 
with their new innovative technologies, whether it be Apple Pay or Libra or Amazon Go or a number of other different areas that are starting to penetrate. How should banks and payment incumbents be thinking about big tech entering their industry? Is it friend or foe? It's the perfect question. And like most things in life, we'll only ever really know retrospectively because, you know, History and success has many fathers and mothers, but as you and I often quote, the Warren Buffett quote, that if history was all there was to success, all librarians would be billionaires. So there's there's huge opportunity, and I think that's the way that the incumbents have to look at it. One strategy I can guarantee isn't right is put your head in the sand and wait for it to pass. Just coming back to Herman's comments and, and maybe answering your question this way, Earlier on in this chat, we discussed other industries that have been massively disrupted, you know, less regulated retail with Amazon as a good example. If I just perhaps use a music industry analogy, because there's been huge innovation in the music industry over a relatively short period of time. You know, I can think back to vinyl, Sony Walkmans, you know, cassette players, and then CDs. And we thought CDs was as good as it was ever going to get. Then you get digital downloads. And all of that technology innovation has happened very quickly. What is less covered is what was going on in the background, because what's enabled that distribution to change is the fact that the incumbents weren't able to shift. You had four or five very large media companies. We remember in Web 1.0, AOL, Time Warner, lots of companies coming together, thinking that that sort of putting two old business models together would buy you time to come up with a new one. And it was the same in the music industry. But what happened is a perfect storm was created around the data and what Herman was just describing. So the industry control was, I'll give you a cassette and I'll give you the devices upon which you can use that cassette. So it's a Sony Walkman, it's a a hi-fi with a cassette player. Then I'll sell you DVD players and I'll give you DVDs, but I'm still controlling that supply chain and those supply chains report to me. And in the banking industry, the examples Herman gave you know, the ATM suppliers would never go and compete with the banks because they wouldn't have anyone to sell to. And there was no money in just building an ATM and putting it out on the street. And then suddenly with data and consumer permissions, which they're very happy to give to Apple or my favorite example, Spotify, suddenly you've got this incredible cloud where consumers can say, this is the sort of stuff I like, but I I don't like that artist enough to buy an entire album. And I certainly don't want you to send me a cassette. I just like a couple of his or her tracks or their tracks. And then what the Spotify algorithms are doing is, is making recommendations to you. Now, historically, that would have been in the record store. That would have been in HMV. You'd go to someone, you say, I like this artist. What do you think of another artist? But you're still locked into buying that single format, that vertical product. And so what you now have with Spotify or with Beats by Dr. Dre is this amazing opportunity to be taken on a journey. And as Herman said, taken on a journey that moves your life. It's like that favorite track you want to put on or your best playlist as you're walking across the Brooklyn Bridge. And that is coming, you know, and I will say that very, very confidently, that is coming into financial services. And lots of people will say, yeah, how are you ever going to do that? Well, I'll tell you how you're going to do that. You're going to get lots and lots of consumers and in our case, lots and lots of businesses to agree to their data being used in a way that helps them be more efficient, helps them be more effective, helps their money go further for the consumer. And that's where they'll put their money because the loyalty to a brand that my grandfather said was the right brand won't last forever. So that's the sort of word of warning. 
and I give it now because I don't think that the time is lost. I think there are some amazing stories. You know, if you look at banks like Capitec in South Africa, didn't exist 20 years ago, 16 million consumers, all digital, very innovative. Look at New Bank in Brazil, really innovative. Look at what Goldman Sachs are doing with Marcus. There are lots of examples where banks are starting to embrace this approach. But the big difference now is they're competing with, as you said in your question, Amazon, Apple, Google, and companies that just do this stuff intuitively and see banking for what it is, which is just another thing I have to do every day. So make it as easy for me as possible. I love all of those points. And actually, there's a ton of things that you've seeded in my mind. But one of them is thinking about millennials. We don't often think about millennials as wielding a lot of power, but they're already more than a third, I think, of the global labor force. And they own today just over $9 trillion in assets, but that's set to rise by over 75% in the next 10 years. You think about what that transfer of wealth and that growth of wealth is going to do to trends. Trends for banks, trends for payment firms, and ultimately opportunity, opportunity for socioeconomic upside where we can ensure that a generation are pointed in the right direction. And as we get to the end of the podcast, that's something I'd like to talk to you about, knowing how your mind works and ever thoughtful about this sort of thing. We've lived through arguably the most bizarre year of our lives, extremely challenging for many. But what are some of the trends that you've witnessed that you think are going to have a profound effect for years to come, for better or for worse? Well, a lot of us could have done much better by listening to His Royal Highness the Prince of Wales 30 years ago when he was producing his book Harmony, which is now an award-winning film, talking about things that we now, of course, have splashed all over the headlines all day, every day, climate change, shifts in planetary behaviour, habitable versus unhabitable. And you know, David Attenborough has just done his kind of take on that. I couldn't be more hopeful about you know the future, the abundance of what the new generations are bringing to us, because there is a connected consciousness emerging as technology takes over a lot of the mundane things that we've historically built our lives and our badges and our hierarchies and our walls around. With those all being done for us, People have time to think and to connect. And what's amazing for me, and you know, I think about your boy and mine, you know, our sons, they're being born into a generation that don't talk about purpose because it's a CSR box ticket exercise. It's embedded in them. It's embedded in them because they're given the facts, they're given the information, they have access to all the information. It's not a school teacher that if you didn't get on well with them, then you decided you had no interest in history for the rest of your life or geography or, or you know, what was the experience for many of us. All of that information is there for you to find, to be shown by your peer group. And that's leading to this connected consciousness where people realize we have finite resources, that actually we are very wealthy as people. We're very rich as humankind. And the more we share that wealth, the more that karma ensures that we have a brighter future. So I feel incredibly positive about that. And I think the brands and the companies that tap into that from the top down, you know, some big, big question marks continue to be asked about the world's largest technology companies. If you have a billion people interacting with your brand every day, then you better recognize the awesome responsibility you have for the mental well-being of that person because you've got a continent's worth of customers. So 
I'm very positive about the connected consciousness. I do think there's still some huge turbulence as we go through that transition, as my mum calls it, the egg timer. When you turn it upside down, it squishes you through the middle, but it gets pretty bright on the other side. So yeah, that's my two pennies worth. A perfect way to close this podcast off, I think. But just before we do, like I said at the start, two titans of industry, two people that have experienced a great deal. What advice would you give to the next generation coming into the workplace? You know, if you were to give your younger self some advice, what would it be? Yeah, the advice I think that I've condensed down and that's worked well, two bits in essence. What one, a sort of three-part rule. You know, be known for something, be distinctive, take a position, be known for that. Be prepared to take a risk to make that happen and don't hesitate to ask for what you want. You know, don't be a victim. Don't feel the system's playing. You ask for what you want, what you need. And I think I've stayed actually quite a number of years at each employer. And there's something in that David Bowie song, you know, love the one you're with. It's very easy to think about the grass being greener on the other side, but there's a heck of a lot you can do from inside if you're clear about what it is that you want to change and what it is that you can bring. That's awesome. Tough act to follow. Well, I wholeheartedly agree with everything Herman said. I have a slight nuance on the middle point. But yeah, my first point to anyone listening is embrace the ambiguity. You know, opaqueness is a huge opportunity to grow and learn. And so many people have been trained through DNA tracks and, and generations of societal control to wait for the hierarchy to tell them what they should be doing. And I think, you know, to the next generation, embrace the ambiguity, enjoy it, because the grey enables you to spread colour everywhere. I think to Herman's point, I totally agree that a lot of people feel that the grass is greener and jump from company to company. That's not advice I would give. You know, whilst being an entrepreneur, I've actually only really been involved in four main companies over my career. But I would say pick projects, not jobs. I would say, you know, find projects, become part of a team within a team within that company. And every project has a start, a middle and an end. And so whether it's 12 months, 18 months, love that project. And then don't be afraid of going and trying a different project, even if it's within the same organization. And then the third advice I would give, and, and you'll laugh, Sam, because you probably tried to give me this advice regularly as my right-hand man, but rest when you need to. It is a marathon, not a sprint. And we all have enormous amounts of energy, particularly when we're younger. And you're very afraid that you're not going to establish yourself. But yeah, with life expectancy, what it is now, and people carving out careers in their mid, late 20s into their 30s and 40s, rest for the long game because you're going to be working, not perhaps just because you need to, because if you're successful, you have choices, but because you'll want to, because once you've got a brain that enjoys the stimulation, you're going to keep looking for it. So yeah, embrace the ambiguity, pick projects, not jobs, and rest when you need to would be my advice. Oh, Herman, thank you. There's, there's a ton of lessons and insights in there for our listeners, and I know that they will thoroughly enjoy this podcast. All that remains left really is for me to wish you guys all the luck in the world. You won't need it. But I look forward to watching Pollinate go from strength to strength as you cover the rugby playing geographies around the world. Good luck. And I look forward to speaking to you both soon. Thanks, Thanks so much. Thanks, Paul. Thanks, Thanks Sam. Thank you for your time and insights. And thank you very much for tuning in. I'm Sam. See you next time.
The information contained in this podcast is intended for discussion purposes only. It is not a recommendation, offer, or solicitation for the purchase or sale of a security or any services of motor partners. All investing involves risk, and there is no guarantee that past performance will be indicative of future results. The views and opinions expressed in the podcast are as of the date of recording, reflect the views and opinions of the persons expressing them, and do not necessarily represent the views or opinions of motive partners. Motive partners makes no representations or warranties as to the accuracy, reliability, or completeness of any information provided, and undertakes no obligation to update, amend, or clarify the information in the podcast, whether as a result of new information, future events, or otherwise. Any securities, transactions, or holdings discussed may not represent investments made by motive partners. It should not be assumed that securities, transactions, or holdings discussed, if any, were or will be profitable, or that the recommendations or decisions made in the future will be similar, or will equal the performance of the securities, transactions, or holdings discussed herein. This podcast may contain forward-looking statements that are based on beliefs, assumptions, current expectations, estimates, and predictions about the financial industry the economy, motive partners or motive partners investments. Nothing in the podcast should be construed or relied upon as investment, legal, accounting, tax or other professional advice or in connection with any offer or sale of securities.